The downside of being a peak performer often is that we can be our own biggest critic. Today, we learn how to shift out of our crippling self-talk and turn that into becoming our best coach in our life. This is episode 215 with Ray Santiago III. You're tuned into Forever Athlete Radio, where together we go far. I'm your host, Corey Camp, and really appreciate you being here with us today. Ray and I cover a variety of topics today, with the main focus being giving you the tangible tools to empower you to take control of your mindset when it matters most. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that I love mindset and I love talking mindset with the people that I bring on here. But you also know I'm a little bit skeptical of anyone who calls themselves a mindset coach in today's social media coach world. Now, Ray comes from a proven background in sports psychology and has spent years working with athletes of all skill levels and ages to improve their mental, their physical, and their emotional performance. His coaching philosophy is rooted in your belief, your breath, your body, and your ability to battle when faced with adversity, which shows up in his latest book, The Pillar Bees. So we dive into each of those pillars today. You don't want to miss this. Grab a pen, grab a paper, take some notes, and let's dive into it. Ray? Welcome to Forever Athlete Radio, man. First and foremost, how you feeling today? Uh, I'm I'm pumped. I'm excited to be here. Been thinking about this all week. Just number one, getting to catch up with you. Um, I know you're far away in Texas now, but you know we always have Zoom, so hey, it's man. good to be here. Thanks for having me, dude. Of course, I think that's the the beauty of the social media allows us to be connected without even having to be in the same state anymore. So it's been cool. I think we got connected a little is it almost two years now i was about to yeah. say a year but i think it's been almost two years yeah i don't know if it was chloe or lauren i want to say it's lauren i think lauren they're both lauren incredible connectors they're yeah. they're amazing so it's been cool to be able to watch each other's journey and in, in growth and family has been booming for you on your end of things books uh this is the second book right not first so third book actually, third book. but this is my first uh, first nonfiction book coming out. So, talk to me yeah. about the the why behind wanting to get into books in the first place. Because I'm always curious, knowing what it takes on my end too to to go that route. It's not an easy endeavor. It's not a <laughs> get no. money quick endeavor. What why or money at all? Yeah, money at all. Yeah, we're we're just start. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to this, please go buy our books <laughs> so we can eat yes. later. Thank you. Um, yeah, why why books? Well, uh, starting back in grad school, I wrote a paper on um, incorporating your relationship with God into your sport, which was a huge part of my life at the time. And I had written this pa- paper that took me like months and months. And then it's like you turn it in and it's done. It's like, wait a second, there's really good information here. And so I was like, okay, maybe I'll try turning it into a book. And that's the super short version of kind of how I got started. And I took that nonfiction information and a friend lent me their house in New Zealand for a month. Uh, and this is when I was single <laughs> and able to move quickly. And uh, so I went there and turned it into a fiction. And, you know, athletes, as you will know, have a very short attention span. It's not that they don't care. They just, there's so much going on. And so... Uh, instead of the nonfiction, maybe having a story attached to it uh, could keep them reading. And so it's something John Gordon did with like the energy bus and the carpenter. And then Brian Kane did with his series where he took nonfiction concepts and put it into uh, fiction format. So it was a story. And uh, my first book, 
it was good for some reasons, but I wasn't even good at writing fiction. So my first book, worked through it. It's called Playing on High Ground. <laughs> uh, but my second book, I started going to writers' conferences and learning how to write fiction and the value of writing fiction. And so my second book won an award uh, for uh, youth youth sports, and it was it was really good. And so. But for now, I'm done with that. I'm moving into nonfiction, which I thought would be easier, but it's actually way harder because you have to research and research and research. So my current book, uh, The Pillar Bees, How to Transform uh, from Your Biggest Critic into Your Best Coach, uh, it took three years, three and a half years, uh, partially because I got married and now have kids uh, That's and COVID hit. So this started in 2019 and uh, now it's 20 the beginning of 2023 and so finish the book about october and then you got to do editing and all that so mm -hmm. um the book's coming out on february 26th on amazon um but yeah it is as you know a labor of love to to write a book but the research that comes from it uh somebody reads your book they get a lot out of it but the person who actually writes the book gets the most out of it because you have to distill information make it your own make it applicable to your audience and so it uh it's it's been a wonderful experience yeah man i'm curious too in that process as you've learned to navigate that think start contrast right like being able to take a month and just throw yourself into perfect environment to just <laughs> distraction free, like zone in, knock this thing out versus now doing a little bit more analytical research, pulling out stories, pulling out key pieces of information. It's almost tough to like dump everything and then go through the stilling process of well, what, what won't make the cut in this. How yeah. did you navigate that with adding in the additional factors? I'm just curious of your process there. Um, cause I think a lot of people, I know athletes when we're in it, we're really good when we're, we're single, we just have in season, we can just focus on that one thing being our sport. Mm -hmm. And then one of the biggest challenges, I think on the flip side, on the outside of sport can be, how do I make sure that I'm still moving the needle forward in the areas that I want to, and also not dropping the ball and family and relationship and these other pivotal pieces that over make up this overall quality of life I'm curious of just how you were able to manage that over the past three and a half years and still moving the process forward and maybe even just talking about hedging that expectation of how like how fast quote-unquote progress will be made because mm. of these other factors that are happening sure yeah um a, a lot goes into it but something i'll steal from an episode you did with the diver was her favorite book was good to great mm. um and what he talks about is like a hedge hedgehog process where you basically have three things that you focus on and only three things and if you have opportunities from outside uh, if it doesn't fit into those three things it's a no and so for me mine are family my relationship with god and my business or my career if something comes up, it could be a great opportunity, but if it didn't fit into one of those three, it was it had to be a no so that I could continue to say yes to the things that were most important to me. Uh, and as you know, writing is kind of a hobby until you become a JK Rowling, make billions of dollars, right? So it's I still had work every day. But the cool part about my work 
was my work with athletes helped me write this current book because it was real life in action stories. So as I'm writing my book, so much of my book deals with what I deal with with my clients. Now I change the names, I change the sports, so you wouldn't know who it is anyway. Um, but I was getting new material as I'm writing this book, which is also a double-edged sword because it's like, oh, it's never good enough because I got something new. So at some point you have to say, this is good enough for now. You can always make another edition. So, um, you know, being disciplined with your time, you can't watch ESPN as much anymore, you, you know, but you have to show up whatever you're doing. So mm -hmm. if I'm a writer, my wife is kind enough to take the kids and I say, babe, I need, I need six hours to write today. Um, and that's what I love to do. I, I couldn't write if I didn't love it. It just, if you gave me six hours every day to write, oh man, I would be over the moon. But I, I love working with my athletes on the sports side, side of things. Um, and I love being with my family. I love my developing my relationship with God. So those are my three things. And if it doesn't fit, then it doesn't, it doesn't make it into my world. Mm, I love that. I, I like to, I refer to that a lot as like having just scalable rules in place. And like mm -hmm. athlete, we, we love rules. We love, honestly, structure. that's, yeah. Like you, without structure, without rules, the game is chaos. Like it's organized chaos though with, structure and rules in place and it sounds like that's kind of how you were able to to thrive as well and you brought up that piece of like you're a writer today and i, I would mm -hmm. love to talk on obviously identity and at what point did you start to identify and really grasp onto this identity that like you are a writer and you mm -hmm. can write books was that right away before the first <clears throat> book or at what point in that progression did you really start to, to sit and resonate with that? Yeah, I think it was actually after my first book when I went to a writer's conference and I and I saw what really good writing looked like and how to break it down. Mm. And I studied it for two years before I wrote another book. I felt like, and then, you know, the, the fruition of writing that next book with the learning was that I, I won an award. So it gives you a little validation so that someone, some organization thinks that, you know, you're a decent writer. Um, the definition of professional is like you get paid for it, but you know, so do I, I don't want to say like have an ego of like, oh yes, I'm a writer. Blah, blah, mm -hmm. It's not like that. But when I put on my thinking cap and my writing cap, it's like, I'm the best writer in the world. Somebody needs to hear this and every sentence uh, matters because at any sentence you could lose a reader where it's mm -hmm. like, oh, I need to go to the bathroom. They may never pick up, pick up your book again. So as you write, every sentence matters. Just like when I work with a baseball player, every pitch is the most important pitch. You don't know until the end what pitch was the most important pitch, but you treat it that way. So as you write, as I write, we don't just, you know, that distilling process is, does this need to be here? Does this make the point that I'm trying to make? Does this lead the sentence or the reader to the next sentence? And if it doesn't, it has to go. So even a word choice can be the difference. So um i take great pride in my writing mm -hmm. uh, i don't need somebody to tell me oh you're a good writer i don't need that i know i'm a good writer or else i wouldn't write uh i know maybe many people think that but you know when i'm writing a book taking three years to do it and i'm reading my stuff i'm saying this is really good i'd rather read my book than a lot of other books right now uh it sounds arrogant but it's, it's not it's just having it's just the preparation and the time and effort that goes into writing a book a hundred percent. And I think as you're speaking there too, I'm hearing that extreme level of intentionality behind each piece 
And I'd be curious to know, because I can, I can look at, for me personally, on the creator side, like content creation, people recently have been like, oh, dude, like you've, you've grown this audience. Like, how did you do that? And I was like, well, it, it first started with me embracing the identity that I can be a creator. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that I'm full-time creator. Like there's still these other roles that I have in my day-to-day life. sounds very similar to you with the writing, but there was this then level of intentionality that I was able to bring to each time I sat down to create that wasn't existing before when I was kind of like half dabbling in it. I'd be Mm -hmm. curious from your perspective, whether it be athletes currently in it or as they start to transition out, how pivotal have you seen it to be with just embracing identity in the first place and then instilling that belief that then they can show up in that new capacity, whether that be as a better player while they're in it or into whatever that next identity chapter is for them. Sure. I mean, I think identity is so important in embracing who you are, not only right now, but who you might want to be later. Mm -hmm. Um, Something that is one of the biggest issues with uh, my, my current clients is comparisons where, you know, you look at somebody on social media and it's like, oh, they're killing it out there. Guess what? That's a, that's the highlight of their life. And you might be looking at that while you're in a low light of your life. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the ability to say no one is perfect. We all struggle. Um, And that's part of a concept in my book called common humanity. Um, You know, not everybody succeeds, but everybody struggles. Everybody has fear. Everybody has doubts. And so the ability to understand that being part of being human is the struggle. And when we look at identity as an athlete, so much of your popularity and confidence comes from being an athlete, Mm -hmm. but also so much of your insecurity can come from being an athlete, depending on how you did last game. (laughs) Uh, And I was just talking to an athlete yesterday and helping him understand that, and this has been said on your podcast before I've heard it, sport is what you do. It's not who you are. Mm -hmm. Sport is a part of your life. It's not all of your life. Um, unless you're on ESPN every day, no one really cares because very few people actually know how you played last game. It's you are seeing it through a microscope where everybody else sees it through a telescope. Like you're really in it and you think your whole world depends on how you perform. And that's just not true. Um, and the people who love you will love you no matter how you perform. And so this was a Christian athlete I was working with and he was teaching him to play for an audience of one an audience of your heavenly father who loves you despite how you perform. And it's like, wow, how much pressure did I just take off of myself? Because I, my focus is on him rather than who's in the stands, what might the outcome be, what this might mean, how people will view me if I do this or that. And so, so much pressure is wrapped up in what other people think. And that comes from a weak identity, your inability mm-hmm. to be strong in who you are as a person. Um, so how do you, find out who you are as a person, you would know better than I, that's your real, um, you know, that's your sweet spot. But I just know that you are more than who, who, who you are as an athlete. So what hobbies, what interests, you know, mm-hmm. what are you naturally good at? What do you enjoy? Uh, find enjoyment in other activities besides your sport. And I, in my book, I talk about how Kobe Bryant, he started the Mamba Academy in Thousand Oaks, California. 
You look at uh, LeBron James. He's, he's like a movie producer, and he's still playing. And so these guys, of course, you know, yeah, they have millions of dollars and all that stuff. Yeah, but they they saw their career as a platform to jump into another area of their life. Alex Rodriguez, baseball player, he did not go to college. Mm -hmm. uh, yet he's one of the, the biggest uh, moguls in, in uh, the real estate industry today because he got mentors throughout his career. Starting in 1996, when he was like a rookie, he was already building A-Rod Corp. Like mm -hmm. he knew baseball wasn't always going to be there. So uh, I'd be curious to, to know or to hear from you on, I think there are these NIL deals now that college athletes can get. Have you heard of anything with that, of how athletes are now taking advantage of opportunities with that? Yeah. I mean, NIL is such an interesting discussion because it it's still so new and it's still like a wild, wild west of sorts yeah. from, from my understanding of it as well. And I don't think there is enough education out there for, for like, honestly, for the me's of the world, for the, the non-revenue generating sport athletes at a mm. mid-major, yes. you know, mm -hmm. you're in this gray area. I remember the story of NIL pass day one. I had a, a DM from uh, a tennis player at Delaware. I won't name names, but he DM'd me and was like, hey, Corey, I see forever athlete stuff you're doing. I don't know if you saw NIL just passed and I was wondering what could you do for me? Oh, and I was gosh. like, I looked at, looked him up and I said, man, respectfully, you play a non-revenue generating sport. You're like the third or fourth best player on Delaware's tennis team. I don't really know what you could do for me. I mean, like elevating this brand. And mm -hmm. so there's, there's no educate. I say that to say like, there's no education in helping not to say he doesn't have value, but sure. he didn't, present himself in a way that pitched him in a way that leveraged who he is, his name, image, and likeness in a way that I could clearly see the value and be like, actually, yeah, like let's sit down and have a conversation. And I, brands aren't used to working with athletes in that capacity where we can create win-wins. So right. it is very interesting to see how NIL has been introduced because there is no education, there is there's so many issues, quote unquote, in that space. On top of that, though, to your point of it does actually open up all these doors for an athlete to actually see a return on investment financially for diversifying who they are as a human and not just be the athlete. So I think what's really interesting, I had a conversation with. Uh, an all-American gymnast on the show. It hasn't been released yet at the time of this recording, but it will be out before this is actually released. And what McKenna was telling me was she had, was able to grow a pretty sizable following while she was a gymnast at LSU, top eight in the, in the country at what she does, incredible athlete. But because she didn't really share much of who she was outside of gymnastics, when she retired, she lost like 10,000 people on her mm -hmm. platforms overnight. Instantly, they were like, we don't care anymore. She doesn't She doesn't compete. And that could right. be a, a real shot to the ego for a lot of people and the identity of and like our self-worth and our value there. So what I think is really interesting, all of this to say with NIL, if athletes are able to embrace it, one, from just a holistic identity and like self-worth conversation level, you'll serve yourself better. And two, from like an external validation, to your point, like you don't 
you don't need a writer's organization to validate that you are a good writer. Like you internally know that. I think that's the same conversation here. If athletes are embracing these other elements of what makes them a human being while they're still in it, it's just gravy. It's icing on the cake when social media following takes off and they get a brand deal and a brand that still wants to work with them well beyond sport because their name actually means something. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my kind of quick thoughts on that. I'd be curious to hear on your side because you're, you're working more hands-on with athletes that are still competing. What have you seen in that realm of things? Has that been a topic at all? Not really because my main clientele are either at the professional level or okay. in the high school level. I kind of, I do have some college athletes. High school uh, NIL right is now. starting to take off. PA yeah. just approved um, NIL, right. NIL deals for high school athletes, which is just interesting to see. Because it's yeah. like, what are you going to, now you got 17 year olds open right. this, but keep going. No, I don't have much more on it. I just, <laughs> it hasn't come up too much with the athletes that I work with. Um, you know, I can see a future in it, but we'll see where it goes. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see, I think as it ties into just bigger brands, right? Like if we can, to your point, like if an athlete can learn how to leverage the the equity of the brand equity of the organizations they're attached to, like mm -hmm. for those not watching this, like I'm wearing a pirate shirt right now. So <laughs> I thought you would like this. It's a little, little Clemente. Oh, nice, uh, Roberto. Yeah. Um, Love it. It's like, I'm not actually a Pirates fan, but while it's interesting, like when you're attached to these organizations, you do have more eyes on you. So how can you leverage that in your favor? Even if you're at a smaller school, D1, D2, D3, um, even a high school, like there is brand equity built there. How can you convert them then into like fans of you as a person? I look at um, the Detroit Lions page has done a really good job of this on um, TikTok. I don't know if you follow them at all, but mm -hmm. they... Jamal Williams has become like this new reborn star. Not mm. only did he lead the league in uh, rushing touchdowns this year, I think, or overall touchdowns this year, um, the Lions kept clipping up things of him and like showcasing his love for anime and showcasing these other elements of who he is. And in doing so, people that like, I don't even like the Lions, but I'm a Jamal Williams fan now <laughs> and I'll be rooting for him wherever he ends up. I hope the Lions bring him back because it's been cool to see sure. that relationship build. Um, and I don't even know where I'm going with that, but <laughs> it's really cool. <laughs> to just I do think that, uh, I do think that social media, when you have an account that's yours, gives you the opportunity to show people who you are not hearing it from the media or anything, which is a double-edged sword because you post one wrong thing or one edgy thing that could cost you. So, but what I do with my athletes is I say, okay, write down three things that you want to be known for. Mm. As if somebody's just coming to see you for the first time, they're going to feel these three things um, and put it as the background on your phone. So anytime you go to post, those three things are top of mind that when I post, does it hit this, this, or this? If it doesn't, don't put it. Because if you're an athlete trying to get picked up, um, people are going to look at your social media. They want to look how you speak, how you act, what you reveal, anything. So it's your opportunity to put your best impression 
And sometimes that's being vulnerable in a text and, and or in a message and said, hey, I just got injured. Um, you know, no one cares about me right now. I feel like a piece of meat. Mm -hmm. And these are the things that an athlete goes through on their rehab uh, back to uh, recovery or back to sport. So it gets it from your perspective. And I think what you're saying with um, that player was you get to see the whole person. You get to see the whole athlete. And it's and it allows people to get to know you and feel a part of your world, even though they're not necessarily, and uh, they're not just seeing the athlete. Because if you just show you as an athlete, it just shows me that all you care about is your athleticism. It doesn't show mm -hmm. me that you care about drawing or that you have a niece that you enjoy taking to the park or, you know, so it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm, I'm less inclined now to follow athletes that just share highlights. Like I, yeah. that's what, to me, like that's what the ESPNs and sports centers are for. Like I will yeah. follow that account because they will do all that research for me and, and put it on a silver <laughs> platter and be like, Oh, you want to, you want highlights? Here you go. Here's everything that's right. worth watching. I don't need yeah. to see someone, you know, unless it's like a Mike Trout edit and he's like at top golf smashing right. the ball. Then I'm like that, that's cool. It's not directly related right. to his sport. Right. I'd be curious. You, you said the three things that um, you want your athletes to put forth and when people meet them and feel, what are your three things? I'd be curious. Cause I, I know we all, we, yeah. I know you and the integrity that you bring to the table. And a lot of it is like, you're doing the work that you're asking other people to do. So what are sure. your three things? I mean, I would probably say God, family. <laughs> and I like to say the New York Yankees, but no, it's it's sports psychology. So God is number one in my life. Everything trickles from that. And then it's my family becomes before anything. Uh, and then it's it's sports psychology. Those are my mm -hmm. three things that I that I love. And if you go look at my page, you're only going to see those three things. <laughs> um I don't follow too many people on social media. I'm not really interested in it. Uh, in my book, mm -hmm. I talk about a mental locker room where what do we do we have as mental security guard, right? You have a password on your phone. Why? You don't want other people in it. You have a lock on your door at your house and on your uh, car. Why? I don't want people getting into it. Yet we allow so much um, unquestioned access to our eyes and our ears without, hey, filtering. Is this something that's going to benefit me? Uh, and so the easiest way to do that is just to not do it, right? Is there's mm -hmm. always a temptation to get caught up. Like I have a TikTok, but I've literally never watched one video on it. I turn on the app and jump right to my stuff. I don't, I can't, it's too abrasive. It just, you know, um, and so it's, what are you allowing in? Because what's going in is going to come out of your mouth. It's going to come out of your actions. Uh, it's going to sit in your heart. And so. Uh, when you filter as much as possible, only the things that you want in, uh, it makes it a lot easier to control what comes out, right? I'm not going to mm. say, watch your mouth. Well, why? I can't do that. It's too hard. But if I say, hey, filter what comes in, you don't have to watch your mouth because only the things that you find valuable uh, are going to come out of your mouth because that's the things that you're entertaining in your mind. Mm. I love that, man. I just went through a serious kind of purge of sorts um, as the new year turned and kind of really assessed like, who is it that I'm allowing into that locker room? Who am I allowing to have access to my consumption uh, mm -hmm. essentially? And the, the way that I looked at it was if I'm following someone, if when I see that name and it's not a, I would love, if they asked me to dinner, 
I would drop everything and say, yeah, let's go grab dinner. Mm-hmm. And it would be an, a productive conversation. I was like, they need to go. So talking about comparison, how are you working through comparisons with your athletes and then just personally too? Because I think it's something that we all have to navigate. Sure. I, I'll address the one with athletes first. And it kind of segues into mine, but we all compare. Uh, it's just natural. So to say, oh, stop comparing yourself to somebody, it's like saying stop breathing. So it's like, okay, we know we're going to compare. How are we using those comparisons for us rather than against us? Um, you've been to combines, you've been to tournaments. Everybody is in it for themselves. Even if you're on a team, it's, I can't take everyone to the next level. I'm trying to get to the next level. And what happens with comparisons is we have this, it's, it's subconscious in the mind that says, I have to be better than you. We mm. can't both be good. But that's just not true. You and I can both be good. And when we have the abundance mindset that, hey, there's scholarships out there for you, there's uh, contracts out there for you and me, then I can start to look at this as more of admiration rather than a jealousy thing um, or a bitterness thing, an envy thing of what you have and I don't have. Because when I start to focus on all that you have and what I don't have, what I have starts to cheapen. And what you have starts to look perfect. And that's where we start to think, well, this person's perfect. You know, they're going to get a scholarship. Look at, they're 6'5", I'm only 5'10". How am I supposed to get this? Right. Mm-hmm. So instead, it's like, wait a second. How can I admire what you do and learn from you? Because you're showing me what the next level looks like. And that's so much different than, well, gosh, they've got it made. I'm screwed. I'm just going to stop. Like the motivation just goes down. But when I see this as an admiration, uh, all of a sudden, like my motivation goes up. Like I think I can get to where you're at. And so when we're looking at comparisons, we're going to do it. How are you choosing to look at it from an admiring standpoint rather than uh, this, this thing that's just evil of looking at yourself as less than. Mm. I love that, man. I I like to boil it down to looking at more construction versus comparison and Mm. i always we fall victim to it and there's always gonna be someone that's like five levels ahead of us or ten levels one i think helping what i found to help for me like scroll back to the people that i really admire scroll back to like where they were when they we were Mm. quote unquote same level or where they were at where i'm at right now and using that as more of like cool what can i learn from them right there in that stage rather than Oh, I see what this person's doing five years down the road from where mm. I'm currently at. I don't know if I, I'll get there. Um, yeah. I found that to be pretty helpful. I'd be curious to let's kind of shift about the book here. Uh, the latest one coming out here in a month or at the time this is releasing, it will be out. So talk to me about the why behind this book and kind of the heart and soul of it. What's What's the intention? What do you hope that the reader feels as they go through this process that you've you've poured your heart and soul into for the past three and a half years sure yeah so the book is called the pillar b's how to transform from your biggest critic to your best coach uh and it really was it stemmed from a interview that i had with the houston astros so um it was a video interview where there's a question that pops up on the screen and you have three minutes to answer it and um, I was 
jamming through the, the interview and it got to one of the last questions and it says, what is your philosophy when working with athletes? And I'm like, well, what the heck, what are they asking? Like, what were those frameworks or what were those theories like DC and Ryan self-motivational theory? I was like, so I just had a terrible answer and I got done with the interview. I never got called back. They said they're going in another direction. And I was fine with that, but I sat there after I was done, you know, beat myself up and I thought, okay, if this question, you know, what philosophy do you use with working with athletes is important enough to a professional uh, sports organization, I should probably know the answer the next time I'm asked that. And so what this book is, is a long-winded three-year answer to that question. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what the Houston Astros were asking me was when an athlete comes to you with a problem, how do you help them? And it was so simple. It's like, why, why wouldn't I have asked myself that years ago? And so when you get done with grad school, you start reading books and then you look at the Brian Keynes and the Ken Revisas and the Harvey Dorfman's and they're using breathing exercises. They're doing all this stuff and they just kind of throw it together in a book but there have been, they're using a framework. I just didn't know it. And so mm. instead of reinventing the wheel, I looked to psychology and found cognitive behavioral theory, which is one of the most um, widely used psychological uh, theories and it helps a lot with confidence, helps with depression, helps with uh, you know wonky thinking and athletes deal with that stuff all the time. And so what I did was I took what's in, um, psychology and brought it into sports psychology and when i say dumb it down i don't mean it like it's done it's simplified because athletes need simple mm -hmm. show me what to do and i'll do it and so there's four aspects of the pillar b so it's believing and believing is your thought life right? uh, breathing is the bridge to your emotions your body is your body and then battling is how you perform and so when an athlete has a issue a problem, performance problem, it's stemming from one of those four areas. That's the only place it can come from is your thought life, uh, your emotional state, something physical, or how you're actually performing. And they all work off of each other. So when you're thinking negatively, it impacts your emotions that causes anxiety um, or worry. And then that takes your body to shaking or trembling or butterflies. And then how do you then go perform? So it's Kind of looks like a diamond in, in the book um, but anytime that it can stem from if you're having a great game and all of a sudden you make an error so that would be your battling your performance section that can then mess with your thinking that then hits your emotions so um, this is all wrapped up now in a context of who what where and when right every moment of life has a context it could be a backyard pickup game but if someone says that university of alabama is going to come watch your pickup game, there's a new context, there's mm -hmm. pressure, there's this guy's watching. So when you have a, a performance issue, there's always something in the background going on that is leading to an issue with either your thinking, your emotional state, the way your body feels, or how you're performing. And so I have a session with a client and in one hour, we will figure out every problem there is. And then the next 30 sessions deals with, okay, what needs to be unlearned and what needs to be relearned. And so that's mm. what the book goes into and breaks down beautifully. So uh, that's why it took three years is, um, is the unfolding of these things is not easy. And if you notice, three of the four B's have an I-N-G at the end, believing, breathing, and battling. Uh, why do you think that is instead of just believe, breathe, or battle? I mean, I think it's a constant thing like it's always happening like it yeah. 
you can get to your point, right? You can go into a game feeling like all four of those are, are rooted in, I almost look at it as a bar stool. All four mm-hmm. of those are rooted on the ground. And then, yeah, an error can happen. You give up a home run, you give up whatever. And all of a sudden now battling, it's kind of thrown off. You're, you're playing from behind, but right. it's a constant, I think, reevaluating and it's not finite. Is that kind of where you were going with it? Absolutely. ING in the English language. Yeah. <laughs> ING is ongoing in the present moment. Mm. And so if I can get you to believe in yourself one moment at a time, you can't lose. You can lose on the scoreboard, but you can't lose in your mind because that means you're competing. And what I have found with athletes is confidence is quite fragile, right? There's mm. a difference between dropping a glass and dropping a piece of rubber. One shatters, one bounces back. And so it's a spectrum of where are you on the confidence meter? Where are you in your believing? And so the book goes into five different sections of um, confidence or believing, as I've named it. And, uh, and so the first one is believing that you're the best. Uh, second is looking at your identity and then can self-compassion, the ability to be kind to yourself. So my definition of mental toughness is showing up for yourself no matter what. Um, I can show up for myself when things are going great, but can I show up for myself when uh, I just missed a dive and belly flopped? Can I show up for myself when I just embarrass myself in front of 50,000 fans? Can I show up for myself um, when I'm the one beating myself up and bringing my own performance down? Can I say, wait a second, how can I be my own best teammate right now? Because when I build up a teammate, I do it so that they rebound and play at their best again. Beating somebody up is never has never worked in helping them play better. And so that self-compassion piece, in my opinion, is the key to this book. It's you, you, we haven't seen it in the sports psych world yet. It's been dabbled in, but this book goes into depth um, of the three aspects of self-compassion, which are mindfulness, common humanity, and self-kindness. So um, that's the unique piece of this book that just hasn't been seen in the sports psych world yet, in my I'd opinion. Be, I'd be curious from, from that perspective, too, how do we how do coaches and then as athletes and just humans express that self-compassion piece without quote unquote, becoming soft, like moving the pendulum too far in the other direction of you hit some resistance and you just pack everything up and say, well, I'm being compassionate. I'm just going to do this later when I feel like it kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah. How does it not impact performance? When I started this research, that's exactly, and the book starts out, that section starts out like, wait a second, doesn't that sound soft? Doesn't it sound weak? Like, it sounds like self-pity. It sounds like self-indulgence. And what I have found from Kristen Neff, which is at the universe, who is at the University of Texas, is that it's, it's the exact opposite because self-compassion always has your best interest in mind. So if your best interest in wanting to get to the major leagues or whatever you want to do, uh, and it comes from a place of love, Whereas uh, self-criticism is fear-based. If you don't do this, you will get, you know, you won't make it in your sport. Whereas self-compassion says, hey, you're already good enough as a person, but this is in your best interest to get out of bed right now and go hit that workout. This is in your best interest because somebody is working out and you also need to put in the work or else it's going to be a lot harder to beat them later. So it's coming from a place of love 
rather than the fear of this is your best interest, not like the other way of like, if you don't do this, you're out of your sport. Mm. Um, and self-compassion has two sides to it. They have the steel side, which we're all really good at, like mental toughness, ah, ah, ah. but it also has the silk side where it's, hey, what do you need right now? Hey, I need a hug, right? Because most of us, we don't, we don't, we don't access that part of us. We all have it because we all need a hug sometimes. So I think of like a mother bear, um, you know, she can protect her cubs. She can provide for her cubs, but she can also play with her clubs, cubs, right? And it's just who, what do I need right now? If there is a threat, I need to be strong, right? And then if my cubs need to be provided for, I need to find the resources and if it's time to play because there's contentment, which is something that athletes have a huge struggle with, is just being content, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I can't enjoy vacation because I need to do this. I need to go work out. I need to do this. But contentment is the ability to just be, and be okay with what is. It's okay to just go draw for a little bit, draw a portrait, draw a landscape or something. So the self-compassion piece, it is super dynamic. I try to poke holes in everything that I come across. I haven't been able to find a hole in this one yet i'm really interested to, to dive into that more because i think there's never been a day there in today's just youth sports and sports in general it that pendulum is very very tough to navigate it's like either too far in the other and it's quote-unquote labeled a toxic environment and it doesn't take into account this or on the other end it's like oh that's too soft someone sent me the other day there's some news I'm blanking on where this happened, but essentially a bunch of parents complained and got a coach temporarily suspended because he made them, his players do, they were high school athletes, made them do 300 pushups in an hour. And they said that was too difficult and hard. And it's so interesting because I, I hear that. And I, I would imagine from <laughs> your background growing up in sport, you're like, come on, 300 in an hour. That's, that's not that bad. Like I remember growing up, we were, we were we took too long by our coaches' standards switching from the pool workout to dry <laughs> lands, and we had to do five minutes straight of flutter kicks on our back. So like you're laying on your back and you're kicking, and it's just a killer like core exercise. And that was because we were five minutes late. And it was like for every minute you you took extra, I told you to be out here at one ten. You guys showed up at one fifteen. You guys were screwing around and like taking too long of a shower, or this and that, worrying about what you looked like. We're going to, we're going to pay the price here. It's like, man, I don't know if that would happen in today's day and age. Like I never told my parents yeah. that that happened <laughs> in a comp right. in a complaining way. I was just like, Oh my God, you wouldn't believe what Chris had us do today. Like I, I yeah. are on fire. <laughs> no, it's the sports world is definitely changing. Um, you know, in some things like, okay, what's the value of doing 300 pushups in an hour? There's not mm -hmm. much value to it. It's actually, pretty it is pretty dangerous to do something like that but yes the heart behind it of okay what caused the 300 push-ups you know was this an ego trip for the coach or was there a punishment involved so you know we can look back and say what was good coaching what was not but mm -hmm. uh yeah the extremes to to what parents are doing these days and the sway they have today it's it's interesting i'm not for it i'm not against it uh just it's very depending on the situation and the context of of what happens yeah I was about to say it's often, I think, just a, a breakdown in communication um, on both sides. Yeah. But Ray, man, this 
with blast. I appreciate you coming on here. I'm excited to even more so after this conversation, dive into the book, get my hands dirty with that. Where can those listening in find more of you get their hands on the pillar bees and, and everything else that you're doing? Yeah. So uh, I'm not sure when this is airing, but if you go to pillar B, the pillar bees book.com, uh, you can get the book there and on Amazon and pillar bees. It's just BS. There's no apostrophe in the actual URL. Um, but for me, I'm on mostly on Instagram, renewed mind performance, just one word. And then if you want, you can put my email in the, uh, in the chat below and all that. So it's Ray three at renewed mind performance.com. Amazing. We'll have that all linked. I just want to say, I appreciate your time, the intentionality and the way that you continue to serve this community and beyond, man, it's, it's inspiring to see. So thank you for sharing that today with us. Yeah. Thanks Corey for having me. It's always an honor. Appreciate you taking the time to listen. I want to introduce a gentleman's agreement. If you've made it this far, I'm committed to sharing top-notch value with you each week. All I ask in return is that if you've been listening to the show for a while, or this is your first time here even, take a minute to subscribe wherever it is that you're listening into, and share this episode or your favorite episode with a friend. Subscribers and shares actually go a long way in helping me and the show continue to grow and get enough traction to justify bringing on bigger guests and bigger value to you, the listener. With over 200 episodes into this thing, you know I'm going to end up hold up my end of this agreement here. So take that 30 seconds to subscribe wherever it is that you're listening to. I look forward to continuing to grow alongside with you here in 2023. And until next week, flow on, my friends. Mm-hmm.